children need to go to children's church, we dismiss them at this time. I ask you to take your Bibles, turn to James chapter 1. And while you're turning there, let me just uh, emphasize once again, uh, we have messages on our uh, on our phones. Uh, we have a group message that comes from our children. And sometimes they can get all excited about something and start answering back into my phone. You know, this is one after another as the kids begin to go back and forth. And one of the messages is that uh, someone will say something, and I don't know how they do it, I can't do it on my phone, but they can do it on their phone. They say, emphasize, and then they give the same message. So they're just, uh, they're, they're emphasizing whatever was said before. And I want to emphasize something I said Friday night. Okay, so that's it is. Why do we have an evangelist come into our our, our church? Uh, as I said, uh, there's a principle in the Old Testament, there's a principle in the New Testament, same one. Out of the mouth of two or three witnesses, my word shall be established. And uh, he said, and I didn't disagree with anything he said, he said many of the things I said. And someone would say to myself, well, why have, a, why have an evangelist? Out of the mouth of two or three witnesses, my word shall be established. And so I liked the fact that uh, we can have men in here that uh, godly men who know the word of God and preach the word of God and say basically what I'm saying, but it gives you another source of uh, witness to what God is saying. And I think it's important for us to, to, to hear uh, them uh, when they come. And, uh, and then, as I preach as well, that uh, you realize that this is God's Word we're talking about here. And we go through God's Word, verse by verse, and uh, this morning we're going to talk about something that some, some of you may not like to talk about. Money. Alright? Oh, we like talking about money, sure. We'll, we'll talk about that. Well, let's get God's perspective on uh, prosperity. So let's... Uh, uh, as we get here to the book of James this morning, we're up to verse 9 in our study thus far. And so we're going to look at a perspective on prosperity. Now, we have thus far seen that James was honored, an honored, humble, and helpful servant of God. We saw that as we began here in verse 1. And then we noted that the trials will come to us in our life. But we said that the pur purpose of those trials is for purity, stability, and maturity. And it gives us an outlook of joy. It says in verse 2, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers' temptations. And uh, then in the midst of those trials, we need the wisdom of God. Uh, you know, we face some trials sometimes. We says, I just don't know how to handle this. Uh, well, if you need wisdom, what are you supposed to do? Ask for it. That's what James is telling us. Ask for it. And even later on, as we uh, will have been learning in our in chapter four of memory verses, we ask uh, we have not because we ask them. But uh, so if we need wisdom, we ask for it. Now today we want to look at verses nine through eleven and note that God is teaching us concerning wealth or the lack thereof. So this is not a health, wealth, and prosperity uh, uh, gospel that I'm giving to you. This is what God's word says about it. Not what some TV evangelist says about it, okay? 
And uh, someone has said, though, money talks. All it says to me is goodbye. Well, maybe that's kind of your uh, way of thinking about money. Uh, but in our text today, James deals with an issue that has likely existed since the very beginnings of civilization. Those who dwell in poverty and those who have acquired much uh, prosperity. And for as long as we have lived, there are, uh, have been differences in social classes. And there is uh, that's likely to continue with the gap becoming larger and, and more prominent. But the issue of economic differences is very clear in this passing, but that's really not the focus. Uh, James knew that the economic status could easily change, and at best, it's temporal. And all that we could acquire in this life will be left behind when we leave this world. And so the real emphasis of this passage is keeping a proper perspective on life. Regardless of our wealth or lack thereof, we must maintain our faith and keep our eyes on the Lord. You know, material possessions wear out and decay. Uh, I could go around the parking lot today and I could point out the decay in some of your vehicles. Well, after all, you live in Wisconsin, right? Uh, and so, uh, but things really seem to uh, escalate. Uh, in that way, around here, uh, we see a lot of that uh, going on in our in our area. But all of your material things, your clothes, they wear out. Your, your uh, things you use at home, uh, uh, they wear out. They break. They they, they just uh, you have to replace them. Or uh, you say, "Well, I don't really need that, so I'm not going to replace it." You know, life is brief. Uh, we kind of saw a little bit of that this last week when we. Uh, thought, man, this, week, this meetings have gone through fast. Uh, we, we have a week of meetings, Sunday through Friday, basically is what we call a week of meetings. And uh, and many churches will not have a whole week anymore. Uh, but uh, So it was unusual for Brother Lynch to have to be here until Friday, he said. But uh, I'm glad he was. Uh, he could be here another week, and I don't think he'd run out of songs to play or uh, messages to preach that matter. Uh, but one day, this life will be over, and our relationship with the Lord will determine our eternal destiny. Now, James does not condemn those who have acquired much. He simply offers some sound wisdom measured with caution concerning their wealth. It's not a sin to be wealthy as long as our possessions do not become an idol unto us. Uh, there was a teacher who was relating to a class the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And then he asked, Now which of you would rather, which would you rather be, boys? Uh, the rich man or Lazarus? Well, one little boy said, I want to be the rich man while I'm living, and I want to be Lazarus when I die. <laughs> well, that's kind of one way of looking right? There's a pastor of the early church who has was a remarkable example of virtue and contentment was asked his secret. And he replied, It consists in nothing more than making a right use of my eyes. In whatever state I am, I first of all look up to heaven and remember my principal business here is to get there. And then I look down upon earth and call to mind how small a place I shall occupy when I die and am buried. 
I then looked around in the world and observed what multitudes there are who are in many respects more unhappy than myself. And so I learned where true happiness is placed, where all our cares must end, and what little reason I had to complain. And I want us to consider the reminders that James gives to us in this text this morning, dealing with the struggles of life and maintaining a proper perspective as we think on a perspective on prosperity. Notice, first of all, the gladness, the gladness of exaltation. In verse 9, it says, Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted. Now this may appear to be what we call a paradox. Two things that just seem like they are the opposite. But those of low degree have much to be joyful about. Notice first of all the participant. James refers to the hearer as a brother. He's speaking to those who have accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior those who have been adopted into the family of God, and we must continue to keep this passage in its proper context. James is dealing with those who are scattered abroad. They're facing diverse temptations. That means many or various temptations as testings, not necessarily a temptation to do wrong, but it's trials and suffering. Because these Christians were scattered, uh, they were going through a lot of difficulty. And this directly tied to the opening verses as he continued to offer wisdom for the difficulties and adversities they faced. Now, this doesn't really need much explanation, but we do need to be reminded of the abundance we have in Christ. You think about it. Many in this world possess more in material worth than they'll ever possess. Just think about your own stuff. Okay. Haven't used it in two years? Throw it out. How many of you do that? Not very many. No, you say, I wish I had more storage space. And there's more, you know, storage buildings going up all the time. Because people accumulate more stuff, more stuff. And, uh, you know, we have so much that, uh, Many people in other places in the world would say, wow, you're rich. You're rich. But you know, we have so much wealth, material wealth, even though we don't think ourselves wealthy. But many times we have people that with material wealth are impoverished spiritually. And so regardless of our physical state, the child of God can rejoice in our relationship with Christ. So this is the participant. Second, notice the position. Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted. James again reveals the position of the believer. One of low degree. This has the meaning of one who does not rise far above the ground. In other words, lowly in spirit, humble. Now as we read this passage, we're reminded of one who is well grounded. Surely those to whom James was writing understood this. Now they had faced so much adversity, they had sacrificed greatly for their faith. 
And no doubt there were times when they were so humbled by their circumstances that they even contemplated, it's not worth it. I'm giving up. I'm going to abandon my faith. They may not have realized it, but their humility was actually working for their advantage. It allowed them to maintain their focus on the Lord, continuing to depend solely upon Him. So we must be cautious of our quest for humility. You know, someone might say, well, I'm proud, I'm so humble. <laughs> you know, a uh, quest for humility doesn't, we need to make sure it doesn't create pride. And many regard their humility in such high esteem that it begins to be uh, pride. And yet we need to possess and maintain a heart of spiritual humility. And we must remember that through our Strength, we can accomplish nothing, but through Christ, we can do all things. And we must also keep in mind that God, who has enabled us to acquire all that we do possess, those who are well grounded will not rise far from the ground. That's what he's talking about here, a globe and real. Then, thirdly, notice the perspective. Here, James speaks of rejoicing. In the fact that the lowly have been exalted. Now this is kind of a paradox as well. Because when I look up the meaning of the word rejoice. It has the meaning of boasting. You say, well that sounds like pride, doesn't it? Well, rejoicing actually has the idea of boasting. And that seems to be contrary to what we're considering. But how can we remain humble and boast at the same time? Well, <coughs> That is the answer in which we're, the answer is in what we're boasting in. Are we rejoicing that we have been exalted? That we've been given a, a place of hype or rank or station? Or are we rejoicing in the God who has exalted us because of our humility? I hope we're making the connection here. Those of low degree, kept low to the ground, can rejoice because of their height, their position, not in society or in the realms of how much they have, but in their position in Christ. The world may look on us and they say, wow, you've missed it. you failed in your life. You're not a success at all. You don't have much. The believer knows by faith that nothing can be further from the truth. We have been elevated in Christ. We belong to Him. And will one day inherit heaven and all the joy and all the splendor. You know, let the world think what they may. We know where we're at. We know the truth of God's Word. We have assurance in Christ our Lord. So we need to have the right perspective. So the gladness of exaltation. Secondly, notice the gain of submission. Look at verse 10. But the rich, in that he is made low. James has not shifted to a different audience here. He's not saying in one verse, I'm speaking to believers and I'm speaking to unbelievers. No, he's talking to the same group of people. He's still speaking to a brother in Christ. 
And so let's see what he has to say to those who are rich in this life. Notice, first of all, the obstacle. James is now speaking to those who have acquired much in life. They are wealthy beyond the world, by the world standards. They financially really don't have any need of anything. They lack nothing. They have the ability to purchase anything they desire. Uh, and he doesn't condemn their wealth, but he urges them to maintain that proper perspective regarding their wealth. You know, it isn't impossible for a wealthy man to serve the Lord. But he must overcome the obstacle as well. You know, many who possess great riches are tempted to serve their money and their possessions rather than the Lord. And we know the story of a rich young ruler. He desired to serve the Lord until he found out he had to share his wealth. We too must be careful. We don't allow anything to come between us and the Lord. In Mark chapter 10, we read there in verse 24, And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said unto them, Children, how hard is, is it for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. So you first find the obstacles. Secondly, the opportunity. Again, in verse 10, but the rich, in that he is made low. And as we consider this, we must keep in mind that James is implying that a rich man also rejoices in being made low. Uh, this speaks of his recognition that his riches uh, cannot extend uh, his life. You can have all the riches in the world that can't live any longer than God intends for you to live. Uh, it won't give you any acceptance. You won't gain any acceptance to God the more money you accumulate, the bigger your bank account, the more land, the more uh, things of this world. James knew the difficulty of the rich coming to that realization. But if they did, they had to a lot to be rejoicing in. You're to be more envy than anyone else I knew, said a young man to a millionaire. Why so? responded the millionaire. Well, I'm not aware of any cause for which I should be envied. What, sir? The young man exclaimed in surprise, Why? You're a millionaire! Think of the thousands your income brings in every month. Well, what of it? All I get out of it is my food and clothes. I can't eat any more than one man's allowance. I can't wear more than one suit of clothes at a time. Even you can do as much as I can, can't you? Ah, oh, yes, but think of the hundreds of fine houses you own and the rentals that, you, that they bring to you. What better am I off than that, replied the rich man. I can only live in one house at a time. As for the money I receive for rent, well, I can't eat or wear it. I can only use it to buy other houses for other people to live in. Really, they are the beneficiaries more than I. And then finally, after a little more discussion, the millionaire turned to the young man and said, I can tell you that the less you desire in this world, the happier you be. All my wealth can buy a single day more of life. Cannot buy back my youth. Uh, cannot uh, procure me power to keep off the hour of death. And then what will all avail? 
when in a few short years I must, at most, I must lie down in the grave and leave it all forever? Young man, you have no cause to envy me. No many today are placing their faith and their trust in things that will not last or stand before God. The rich trust in their riches. The proud trust in their works. The educated trust in their wisdom. The wicked trust in their unbelief. And if one knows the truth, having accepted Christ as their Savior and trust solely in Him, they have much to rejoice in. He alone can provide salvation. And salvation through Him is the only way to gain eternal life. So we have the gladness of exaltation. We have the gain of submission. Thirdly, we have the guarantee of completion. In verse 11, uh, 10 again, it says in verse uh, the second part, because as the flower of the grass, he shall pass away. For the sun is no sooner risen with a burning heat, but it withereth the grass, and the flower thereof falleth, and the grace of the fashion of it perisheth. So also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. Kind of concludes this thought. He offers a reminder concerning the end of life. Regardless of our achievements in this life, each one of us is going to face the end of life one day. We'll all complete the course that's been set before us. So notice, first of all, the brevity of life. In verse 11, for the sun is no sooner risen than the burning heat, but it withereth the grass. James speaks of a common phenomenon that we're all familiar with, the rising of the sun. He knew that all had experienced the sun rising in the morning and the heat bearing down before midday. All had witnessed the tender grass withering under the scorching sun. Early that morning it was healthy and it was vibrant, but quickly it began to wither and die. We all know well that life on earth is brief, at least, or at best. The longer we live, the quicker time passes, right, folks? Especially you folks that are uh, older than me. Um, you young people, you know, I wish, you know, there's young people who say, boy, I'll be glad when I get this seat. I'll be glad when I get the I'll stay wherever you're at. Some of us wish we could be there again, but we can't. No matter how much we have, we can't go back. It doesn't seem that long that we were children ourselves, wondering if we'd ever be able to drive. You know? Can't wait till I can drive. Now we wonder who will drive me. <laughs> Life is brief, and we must maintain a proper focus of it while we're living here on earth. We only have one opportunity to live our lives for the Lord. James 4 tells us, whereas, in verse 14, whereas you know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. So we have the brevity of life. Notice the vanity of life. For the sun is no sooner risen with the burning heat, but withereth the grass and the flower thereof fadeth and grace of the fashion of it perisheth. I, I think there's a very practical pointed illustration here. And we've all witnessed the beauty of flowers in the summer. They grow and they bloom and we enjoy their beauty. I think pretty flowers are some of the most beautiful things on earth. And yet we're now witnessing them fading. As winter comes, 
and they dry up and they wither away. The blooms turn brown, ugly, we drop from the stem. Something that once brought joy is now cut down and cast itself. And so the principle here is that much, how much is that much we place value and emphasis on, but it's really temporal. How many today spend most of their time and their energy on things that will not last? Uh, we'll build the finest home in all of Washburn County, but eventually it's going to need repair. We can spend all of our time and our money on striving to stay young and beautiful, but eventually age will begin to take its toll. It begins to show. James knew that much emphasis was being placed on vanity. And we must ensure that our lives are lived for the Lord in light of His holiness, seeking to please Him above all else. The brevity of life, the vanity of life, and then the certainty of life. Because as the flower of the grass, he shall pass away, so also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. James says that it's inevitable for all who dwell upon this earth, regardless of how much they acquire in this life, just as the grass withers and the flowers fade and fall away, so too must all come to an end. The rich man's riches will not keep him from the clutches of death, nor will the beggar's poverty. The fact is we're all going to die unless the Lord comes back soon. Reminds us of the rich man that Jesus spoke of in Luke chapter 12. Verse 16 through 20, it says there, And he spake a parable unto them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, because I have no room where to bestow my fruits? And he said, This will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there will I bestow all my fruits and goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul that has much goods laid up for many years. Take thy knees, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then who shall those things be which thou hast for thee? Well, then let's consider as well this morning the gravity. Of this is a serious thing to consider. We must have a serious understanding of the difference between God's perspective and man's perspective concerning wealth. And as Christians, we must carefully be careful not to adopt the world's point of view. And that's so easy for us to do. Notice with me very quickly this morning, ten comparisons between the world's view and God's view of money or wealth. First of all, money gives you security. That's what the world says. you got lots of money, you'll be secure. You can be secure as long as you have money. Is that what God's view is? No. The wealth of this world is insecure. It will disappear quickly. True security is found in trusting the Lord. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24 says, Thus saith the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches, but let him that glory glory in this, 
that he understandeth and knoweth me that I am the Lord which exercise loving kindness and judgment and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, saith the Lord. And then, of course, in the New Testament, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, Paul told Timothy, Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded, nor trust in certain riches, but in the living God, who giveth us richly all things to enjoy, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come. Then they lay hold on eternal life. The world says money gives you security. That's not God's view. The world says money gives you freedom. Again, you go to 1 Timothy chapter 6, it says in verse 7, For we brought nothing into this world, and certainly we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us therewith be content. But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare into foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil. While, which while some coveted after they have erred from the faith and pierced them through with many sorrows. The world says money is power. <clears throat> God's word teaches us that the kind of power that matters in this world. Romans 15, 13. Now the God of hope will fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope through the power of money. No. The power of the Holy Ghost. You see, that's God's view. The world has had a completely different world view. And of course, 2 Timothy 1 7 says, For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. Now the world says, Money is the only thing that matters. Matthew 6 33 says, But seek ye first the kingdom of God. Psalm 37, 16, the little that a righteous man hath is better than the riches of many wicked. Proverbs 16 and verse 8, better is a little and righteousness with righteousness than great revenues without right. The world says, you know, money will determine your worth. The Proverbs 11, 4 says, riches profit not in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivereth from death. The world says, money will make you successful. Proverbs 23, 4 and 5 says, labor not to be rich. Cease from thine own wisdom. Wilt thou set thine eyes upon that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings. Fly away as an eagle toward heaven. Remember that? Money talks. The mindset is good. Money, it seems like it. Has wings, and it's gone. The world says that money makes you happy. John 15, 11 says, These things have I spoken unto you that your joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. Here are these things. It's the things of abiding in Christ, keeping his commandments, and doing what he's told us to do. Those are the kind of things that will give you joy and happiness. 
John 16, 24, Hitherto have ye asked nothing in my name. Ask, and ye shall receive that your joy may be full. world says money brings opportunities. Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20 says, Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. The world says, well, you're going to have opportunities if you have money. If we put our faith and our trust in God, He's going to give us exceedingly abundantly above what we can answer. And then the, uh, the world says, money is yours. Yeah. You earned it, it's yours. You invested it, it's yours. And Psalm 24 verse 1 says, the earth is the Lord's. And the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell in it. Everything belongs to God. God can take it away just like that. You may have worked for it for years and years and years. And you may have built up your, your investments and it can be gone. Because God is in control. The world says, money is to use on yourself. You deserve it. You worked hard. It's yours to use on yourself. First Timothy 6.18 says that they do good that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate. The word communicate there is to give. Give that which you have. That's what they did with Paul. They communicated to him. They, they helped him in his ministry by support financially. And so those are things that the world has a perspective on. But God has His perspective, and we need to operate on His perspective rather than yours. Very famous saying of C.T. Stud is only one life that will soon be passed. Only what is done for Christ will last. He alone can save our souls, He alone can provide eternal life. And I pray that our focus is on Jesus with a desire to serve Him faithfully with the life that we've been given. There's certainly an application for those who are lost, I think, in this passage as well. He's, he's talking to believers. We said that the participants were believers, both rich or poor. But there is an application, and I have to ask, what are you trusting in in this life? We all have an appointment with death. It's appointed in a man wants to die, and then the judgment. One day this life will be over. We're all going to face God. You know for certain that you'll go to heaven and you die. And you trust that Jesus Christ is your Savior. And I would say to our, those of you that are Christians who are believers, of course this has very much to say to us. What is our main priority in this life? What are we devoted to? What have we devoted our time and our priority and our energy to? Are we using what God has blessed us with in a way that pleases Him? Do we desire to serve the Lord and please Him above all else? If not, we should. I don't know what your need is this morning, but I urge you to seek the Lord and His 
wisdom concerning these things. You know, God has many goals in allowing trials and testings to come in our lives. And that was one of the things that, that he was talking about here. But someone has expressed it like this. If I must carry a burden, Christ will carry me. Sometimes we must be laid low before we look high. In ourselves, we are weak, even when we are strong. In Christ, we are strong, even when we are weak. It's not long how long you live or how you're going to, how you're going to live. So the question is, what is your perspective? Are you lining up your perspective with God's perspective? Let's pray.